This morning we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 7. If you brought your copy of God's Word, you can open there with me. What I've done is I've built a sermon from verse 21 all the way down through verse 29 um, to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount, this great sermon that Jesus um, is preaching. Uh, We aim to finish this over the course of the next two weeks. This Sunday and next week, I've broken this into two parts. And in the first part today, what you're going to hear and see on the screen as you work through the passages with me, you're going to, I'm going to do a little journey through the first seven chapters quickly, like a rock skipping across the water to establish a foundation that leads to the conclusion of Jesus' sermon as Matthew has been building the case that Jesus is the one who has brought eternal life through himself. Uh, From what we saw in Matthew's gospel at the very beginning, uh, Matthew made it very clear that this Jesus was Israel's Messiah. If you think back to chapter 1, that great genealogy chapter, the chapter that we all love to read through so much, Matthew shows us Jesus is of the right genealogy to be the Messiah of and from Israel. Jesus was the child born of a virgin whose name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And there Matthew confirms that this child will be conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he says there in verse 21, will will save his people from their sins, this child that she will give birth to, and his name will be called Jesus. And so when we get to the end of Jesus' preaching at the Sermon on the Mount, he makes it very clear that he is this narrow gate, the only way through which there is entrance into his said eternal kingdom. Matthew was establishing this from the very beginning of his gospel. And so in chapter 2, all of this was confirmed, if you remember, by the visiting, visiting magi who having seen his star in the east, came to worship this child, whom they claimed was to be born the king of the Jews. God had revealed this knowledge to them through his word. Where is he? They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And we know that even Herod, after his interaction with the Magi, sought to discover the child for the very purpose he claimed of worshiping him. We see that in verse 8. Herod told these magi to go and search carefully, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may worship him. I don't think that Herod's intentions were of the same value. However, in the meantime, the magi do find the child. They offer extravagant extravagant gifts, which no doubt were able to fund Joseph and Mary's journey into Egypt, the long stay, in order for Herod to die. And then We know that at the end of chapter 2 that Joseph is told of Herod's death and that it would be safe for him now to bring the child back to Israel. And we know that they were providentially led back to Israel and settled in the city of Nazareth. And then in chapter 3, John the Baptist explodes onto the scene in accordance with Isaiah's prophecy as the forerunner of this coming king, this coming Messiah. In chapter 3, 1, 2, John the Baptist, in those days, John came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, and here in verse 2, we have the first of this 
of this idea of repentance is needed for entrance into this king's kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's, and it's here where Matthew clearly connects all that has proceeded in the first two chapters with the coming kingdom of heaven, which as a result of Christ's birth, he says, is now at hand. And this kingdom language wasn't something new if you think about it with the Jewish people. Most, if not all of them, were aware of a coming Messiah, this figure who would be likened unto Moses, who would ultimately sit on David's throne as king over his kingdom. And so by the end of chapter 3, Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan River in keeping with all righteousness. And it's there where God's Spirit descends on Jesus, and they hear the voice from heaven of God's voice that says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And in chapter 4, Jesus is greatly tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. He passes the test, always relying on the Word of God for strength and victory over those temptations. John the Baptist is removed off the scene, having been taken into custody, and it's then and there that Jesus begins his public ministry. People who had been sitting in darkness indeed began to see a great light. And then we see that Jesus too, like John previously, began preaching about a coming kingdom. In chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, same message, repentance at the outset, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, same message as John the Baptist. And the rest of chapter 4, Jesus begins gathering to himself disciples and going throughout all of Galilee preaching this message. We see this later in chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, and notice, proclaiming what? The gospel of the kingdom. Today we just say the gospel. He's proclaiming the gospel of the, of the kingdom, and his message is being validated because he's doing things that only God can do. He's healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And I love this, this uh, the way Jesus, it's the way it's stated here, that he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom throughout all of Galilee. And following this, uh, Matthew then beautifully preserves for us what such proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom was like. Have you ever wondered what would have been, would have been like to hear the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom as Jesus went throughout all Galilee teaching? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the wonder of hearing Jesus himself proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom? How amazing and how marvelous that would be? Well, from Chapters 5 through 7, for anyone who's willing to read Matthew's gospel, we get to experience what it would have been like to hear Jesus proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom message. Because that's exactly what the Sermon on the Mount was. And notice what we see immediately at the beginning of this sermon. Chapter 5, 1 and 2, when he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, and here we are right back to the kingdom of heaven, the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. So the Beatitudes beautifully reflect what genuine repentance does in the life of those who are desiring entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Remember, Jesus' preaching began with, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in this sermon, we have a, 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 a 
a building out of what he continued to say after the need for repentance. And these Beatitudes are a beautiful expression of what genuine repentance will look like in the life of those who truly repented, of what new hearts look like in action. They are poor in spirit. They mourn over sin. They are thus gentle. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. And they ultimately will be persecuted and insulted for righteousness. But when such transformation has taken place in this person's heart, they are able, it says at the end of that section, to rejoice and be glad, knowing that theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of heaven was indeed their great reward. Think of Stephen and his death. Does Stephen not embody these beatitudes perfectly? Father, he's being so, after proclaiming the good news, they stone him, and he just looks up and he sees Jesus and he says, Forgive them. They know not what they do. He embodied beautifully the beatitudes because he had repented, he put his faith in Jesus, and he knew that his was the kingdom of heaven. And he wasn't clinging to this earth anymore. As long as he was here, fruitful ministry. But as Paul once said, absent from the body, present with the Lord. To die is gain. It changes everything. And one of the things that we see here, that Jesus in his kindness lets us all know that these are the inward attitudes that will describe the person who chooses to follow him. He doesn't get all into specific theological language saying that the inner work of the Holy Spirit of God will be at work in them, progressively making them atti- these attitudes more reflective of their attitude. He doesn't go there. He just simply states the obvious, that such people whose lives reflect these inner attitudes as a consistent way of life will be those who inherit the kingdom of heaven. We see this plainly stated in chapter 5, verse 2. Blessed are these kind of people, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then it's bookend, then in chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. And so, conversely, it should not be scandalous to say that people whose lives do not reflect these inner attitudes as a consistent way of life should not wrongly be expecting to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Because followers of Jesus, those desiring entrance into his kingdom, Jesus says there will be those, they will be those who embrace these inner attitudes as a new way of life that comes from a new heart that comes by means of genuine repentance. And as the rest of the New Testament testifies, but most importantly what Jesus himself says, what he specifically says to the seven churches of Revelation, confirm that those who thus seek for and desire the eternal kingdom will be those marked out by perseverance in these inner attitudes all the way to the end of their life. Unto the grave. Let me quickly, as quickly as I can, 
show you what Jesus revealed through John to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And the application for every Christian in every church that's ever going to exist until Jesus comes back for his bride can be found in these churches as well. To Ephesus in Revelation 2.7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. To him who overcomes. I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the garden, which is in the paradise of God. To Smyrna, Revelation 2, 10 and 11. Do not fear what they are about for, for what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, another word is perseveres, the perseverance of the saints will not be hurt by the second death. How about to the next church, of Pergamum, 2.17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. To him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. To him who overcomes, to, to him... I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Overcomers, perseverers in the faith all the way to the end. How about Thyatira? He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end. To him, I will give authority over nations. How about to Sardis? 3.5, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. To Philadelphia, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him my write on him the name of my God, and the name of my the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. Those who persevere, overcomers, in following Jesus all the way to the end. How about Laodicea? He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne to every church Jesus' promise to those in the churches is that if they will overcome which is the idea of persevering in faith which as we have seen in Jesus' preaching of the gospel of the kingdom means persevering and living a Godward life to those who overcome the world, the flesh, the devil all the way to the end there is a promise of life with him in his eternal kingdom where you will be granted to eat of the tree of the life in the paradise of God. Isn't that beautiful? In every one of the churches, there's a promise of eschatologic hope for those who persevere in their faith all the way to the end. 
genuine followers of Jesus will be those who persevere in these things all the way to the end of their lives because it was God who began such a great work in them, giving them spiritual eyes to see truth. And it will be God who perfects these inner attitudes in the lives of his children all the way to glorification. Yet, these same followers of Jesus will also persevere in their Godward life because they considered the true cost of following Jesus when presented with the gospel. It wasn't just a religious exercise to them, so-called fire insurance or a fleeting emotional moment. It was all about a relationship with the man, Christ Jesus, who freely offered them forgiveness of sins and eternal life in his name. And so they purposefully chose the narrow way that leads to the narrow gate. They said yes to following Jesus with all their heart well before they ever knew anything about God's sovereign electing grace. They knew that the narrow, restricted way that leads to life wasn't going to be an easy path to walk, that there would be a cost. But for some reason... All they knew is that they were drawn to Jesus and believed his message. And thus they put their faith in him because it was what their beating heart was desperately longing for. They knew he was the Messiah of God. He was the long-awaited Messiah and that the kingdom was now at hand. And it was for this reason that Jesus said obvious and simple things like, good trees bear good fruit. They will put their hand to the plow and they don't look back, no matter the cost to them socially, no matter the personal loss of earthly goods. Jesus was now to them their all in all. As the title of one book rightly says, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so Jesus, as the new lawgiver under the coming new covenant, he taught those who desired to be in his kingdom what obedience to him would look like for those who possess such inner attitudes. He said it would look like being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, of not hating your brother or sister, but purposefully seeking reconciliation, not committing adultery even at the lustful heart level, but taking bold, decisive actions to win over sexual sin, of honoring and holding marriage in high esteem, of being people of integrity and keeping our word. Yes means yes, no means no. Of going the extra mile with people when needed, of loving your enemies and praying for those who mistreat you, of giving to the needy and praying not to be noticed by men but by God, and of fasting not to be noticed by men but by God, of storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth, because we know that it's impossible to serve both God and money, of being anxious for nothing, not your life, what you will eat, what you will wear, and of seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness above all things, of rightly judging others by first judging yourselves against God's standards, of treating people the way you would want them to treat you. Jesus, in his kindness, shows us here in this sermon what the narrow path requires, what plowing in his vineyard will look like for those who choose 
to follow him. And here as Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he shows us all what good fruit looks like, what practicing righteousness will look like. And as such, people whose lives reflect these outward fruits, these outward good works, as a consistent way of life, as their habitual practice, will be those who inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so conversely, it should not be scandalous to say that people whose lives do not reflect these outward fruits, these outward good works as a consistent way of life, should not wrongly be expecting to inherit the kingdom of heaven. After all, this is why Jesus said simple things like, bad trees will bear bad fruit. You will know them by their fruit, by their lives, and most often by the lives of their disciples, because a bad apple doesn't too far, far, fall too far from the tree, does it? Jesus plainly teaches all people, anyone interested in following him into his eternal kingdom, he shows what the tapestry of their lives post-conversion will look like. And isn't this why James, Jesus' half-brother himself, said in his epistle in James 2.24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone? When Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, after telling them of their need of repentance, he showed those listening what the transformed life would look like if they chose to follow him, if they truly chose to repent. We don't do this anymore, do we? When we do evangelism, all we do is tell people that if they believe in Jesus, that they are saved from hellfire and instead inherit streets of gold. We no more call for repentance from sin. We don't ask them to consider the cost of following Jesus by laying out beatitudes or similitudes. We don't even mention these things. It's a big difference. Because these were the very warp and wolf of what Jesus did when he went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And Matthew preserved one such preaching and teaching session for us. And the problem seems to be that in doing evangelism the way we do, there has developed what we might call sacred cows of theology that makes preaching Jesus' message on the gospel somewhat obsolete. Which is why when we get to the end of his preaching, he says things that are really hard for modern-day American evangelicals to even understand. Like what we're going to see in his teaching from verse 21 all the way through verse 28, these are things that are difficult for us to even sometimes understand and or make sense of. And in this passage that finishes this great sermon, this beautiful sermon on the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus, after entreating all who are listening to him to, quote, enter through the narrow gate that leads to life, he makes it really clear that not, that not all who will claim to be followers of his truly are. Jesus is going to show that it's possible to have a right understanding of certain facts about Jesus that would cause an individual to practice certain religious activities and to even use particular religious language correctly and still not be on the narrow way which leads to the narrow gate through which is eternal life in Christ Jesus, which is why he, 
after preaching the need of repentance from sin against God, so clearly articulates the fruit of genuine repentance in the life of the child of God so that it can't be missed. Jesus doesn't want anyone to miss this and thus speaks in the plainest language possible. Notice verse 21 of Matthew 7. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that there can be false professions, doesn't he? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's be honest. This is hard for most in the modern American church who would claim to be Christians to accept, isn't it? Our modern gospel preaching says that if you simply walk an aisle, say a prayer asking Jesus into your heart, that you're assured of heaven. So clearly, we wrongly think that calling Jesus your Lord would be a sufficient outward sign of a genuine heart change. Right? Yet, if what Jesus says here is true, then that can't be true. Jesus shows here that everyone needs to know that simply saying the right words, Lord, Lord, or I ask Jesus into my heart, or I believe the Bible, or even I believe in Jesus, will not get you saved and into his kingdom. Now, it's fair to say that if such people were told that's all they needed to do to get saved was to do these things, and perhaps they did do those things, and they even did these things with a certain amount of sincerity, that we could at least give them credit and say, well, they at least did what they were told to do, and they did it with sincerity. Ergo, it must be true, right? Well, what Jesus teaches is that sincerity isn't the appropriate test for the genuineness of one's claim to be following him. What Jesus showed us in his preaching through the Sermon on the Mount is that the appropriate test for the genuineness of one's claim to be following him is the fruitfulness of one's life following their profession of belonging to him. This is what Jesus demonstrates as the appropriate test for the genuineness of one's claim, not sincerity, not words off the lips. And it's thus for this reason that Jesus says here in verse 21, that it isn't right words, but right actions that will allow someone to enter into his eternal kingdom. Because perseverance in fruitful living is the appropriate test for the genuineness of one's claim to be following Jesus, for the genuineness of one's claim to having had repented of their sins and to be following Jesus is the perseverance in fruitful living. This is the gospel according to Jesus. But American evangelicalisms don't talk like this. We instead say that if you say right words, you get into Jesus' kingdom regardless of how you live your life. That's what we say. We make the broad way look like the narrow way. Instead, 
Jesus is saying the appropriate test by which we evaluate our own lives. I'm not talking about you looking around at you and the people around you or your neighbors or your mom or your dad or your friends or your sisters. I'm talking about you looking at you in the Word of God, in the mirror that is the Word of God. And saying the appropriate test for me being able to understand if when I made a repentance of sin and of turning to Christ, have I been doing that for the last 30 years? I look at my life, I look at the fruitfulness of my life, and I say, have I been living the Beatitudes and the, and the Solimitudes in a persevering way? Can I see the evidential signs of the Holy Spirit genuinely at work in my life since I claimed that I was the child of God? Because faithful is he who began that good work in you to perfect it in you all the, way into the, all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? Now, we say that, but do we believe that? And do we preach that gospel? I say foul. Modern-day American evangelicalism doesn't talk like this. Instead, we say, if you say right words, you get into Jesus' kingdom regardless of how you live your life. After all, and, and we say this with certain righteous indignation, because after all, we don't want anything to damage or harm the gospel of grace. Again, no one's questioning the sincerity and as such, the easy believism gospel has become one of those sacred cows of evangelical theology today, which has many sincere people perhaps going down the broad way that leads to destruction, all the while claiming to be preaching the gospel of the kingdom with genuine sincerity, saying, Lord, Lord, and claiming to be one of his. But they aren't. Because the true test of genuine Repentance isn't the sincerity of one's profession, but the evidence of one's life. That's what Jesus is saying. You see, that message, that modern-day American evangelical message, requires a confession only, or we might say alone, as if to remind us all that salvation is by grace through faith alone, as if we've somehow forgotten that. Well, the other, what, what Jesus is saying here is that if one's confession doesn't result in life transformation, again, see chapter 5, chapter 6, and half of chapter 7, then that confession, if it stays alone, will not be credited as righteousness and will not get them into his kingdom. That's what Jesus said in verse 21. Now, while it's true, and it is true, One's right standing before God is the result of God's grace alone. And it's something that we can only experience by faith alone. But Jesus reminds us in his preaching of the gospel of the kingdom that faith alone does not mean a faith that is alone. True faith is always accompanied by works. Always accompanied by life transformation and the genuineness of our confession from Jesus's perspective which is the only perspective that truly matters the way he preached the gospel genuine repentance was only evidenced one way the transformed life did you notice when you go back to the beatitudes it began with the poor in spirit theirs is the kingdom of heaven in the bookend theirs is the kingdom of heaven and not one time did, did it ever say blessed are those who have confessed off their lips that they believed in me 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, not once. Look again at the end of verse 21. Notice what Jesus says there. Pay close attention. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Now it's important to note here that Jesus is not saying that people who enter the kingdom of heaven won't be saying, Lord, Lord, for they most certainly will. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So all of those who do enter the kingdom of heaven, all of them will be saying, Lord, Lord. And all of them will be likened unto the good tree that bears good fruit, that persevered all the way to the end, just like the Spirit said to the churches in the book of Revelation. So that all the churches and all the people in the churches for all time would have intel from Jesus himself through John that those who persevere, there's an eschatologic hope waiting for them. They will be likened unto good trees that bear good fruit because that's what amazing grace does. God takes broken, sinful lives and transforms them into his trophies of grace for all to see. Paul said it like this in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And this follows the beautiful 8 and 9, For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man boast. Right? It's salvation is all of God, not as a result of works, lest any person boast. 2.10 is the beautiful outworking of genuine repentance, of genuine faith, of truly coming to faith in him. We are his workmanship. This word right here in the Greek is the word poiema. It's a, it's a, it's a word that's used in an artisan kind of a concept, like um, a, a blank uh, piece of fabric that an artist would start painting on. And so the idea of, of, a, of a painter who takes this blank sheet of, of canvas and he paints this beautiful tapestry, this beautiful picture that he can then put up on his mantle and people can come in and marvel at the skillfulness of his creativity. Paul says that that's what we are in God's hands. We are his poema. We are being created and made in Christ Jesus for something. And he says it's for good works, which, by the way, God prepared beforehand, before he even saved us, so that as he crafted us as poemas into that beautiful image of his son to put on the mantle as trophies of his grace for the onlooking world to say, that's what amazing grace does in a person's life. It transforms them from kingdoms of darkness into kingdoms of light to look like his dear son. That's truly amazing. And that's what grace does. That's not what grace is supposed to do. That's what amazing grace does. And we in the modern church need to start speaking like Jesus spoke. Like the apostles speak. And that's why almost every epistle, what does almost every epistle motivate us towards? A life of what? Faithfulness a life of fruitfulness, a life of demonstrating that we belong to God, a life that looks like a trophy of grace that's been put on God's mantle so that he can say to all the world and even the angelic host, that's my, those are my kids. Check them out. That's what amazing grace does in the life of those whom God touches and changes.
were his workmanship. Again, a profession from the lips isn't a sufficient test for the genuineness of true repentance. But he who does the will of the Father will be evidentially known as being kingdom kids. No life transformation, absolutely no assurance of one's salvation. None at all. And it's right here. It's right here where well-meaning people have a problem with what Jesus is saying and perhaps what I'm saying. And we'll do some of the most dramatic biblical eisegesis you've ever seen to demonstrate that what Jesus is saying isn't what Jesus is saying. And they use words to do it. Sometimes they're strained, but nonetheless, it's in order to fit a sacred cow theology that makes getting into the kingdom of heaven as simple as saying a prayer. And that's it. And if you add anything to it, it's works. Ah, can't go there. Don't go there. You start talking about the, the, the life transformation. Ah, can't go there. You're adding works to, to, to faith. Can't do that. False gospel. When in reality, the false gospel is being laid right at their doorsteps. And people eat that up and lamp that up. Why? Because it's the easiest lapping that anybody could ever take. That easy gospel that all you have to do is say a prayer. Ask Jesus in your heart, etc., 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 whatever it may be. That's what American evangelicalism has become professionals at. And this is the message that nobody wants to preach or hear. One of the reasons this is so is because all of us, somewhere, have an Uncle Eddie, an Aunt Sally, an older brother, an older sister, a mom, a dad, a grandma, a grandpa, someone we genuinely love. And we want them desperately to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but we know that we've observed their life for 30, 40, 50 years, and we know that having observed their life, they have no genuine interest in the things of God. Now, back in the day, well, yeah, they, they used to go to church back in the day. They, they had attendance. They perhaps served somewhere, and, and they even walked that aisle and asked Jesus into their heart. But they, they kind of outgrew that. But, but you know, we, God and us, we have something. More. Everybody has someone in their family they live like that, and some even are even worse than that. They live like hell. They go out and they live the, the most debauched lives that you can imagine, but boy, when Aunt Sally dies and they show up at the funeral, oh, we're going to see Aunt Sally in heaven again someday. Everybody's convinced of their salvation. Why? Because we've made it so darn easy. All you have to do is say the prayer, ask Jesus into your heart, right? And it's for this reason that Jesus is very articulate and very clear when he went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He started off, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he articulated very clearly through the Beatitudes and the similitudes what changed lives look like, those who genuinely repent. What that looks like. And then to the seven churches, he said through John, and those who do that will be those who persevere all the way to the very end in following hard after me, even if it costs you your life. And it might. It did theirs 
We're kind of in a bubble right now here in America. We're a little bit of a bubble. But with each passing year, have you ever heard those people who give the stats that the martyrs of the Christians were more this year than they were last year? It doesn't touch us, so it seems like it's something that doesn't impact us at all. But I'm telling you, it's a reality here on planet Earth. We need to get the gospel right for ourselves. For ourselves. You can worry about Uncle Eddie and Aunt Sue later, but how about yourself? What did you believe whenever you came to faith? Were you convinced because somebody told you that all you needed to do was walk that aisle and repeat that prayer and then get baptized and that you were good to go and they never said anything to you about the transformed life or showed you that Jesus said that you can say all the right things off the lip? Lord, Lord, we did these things in your name. Depart from me. What, what, what do you mean depart from me? I did what I was told to do and I was sincere when I did it. Again, sincerity is not the test of the genuineness of one's repentance. Jesus, who has to be the foundation of our gospel, says that your life is. That's what Jesus said. And that's why the gospel, according to Jesus, is a hard-hitting gospel. It was Luke who, when recording his account of the Sermon on the Mount, recorded Jesus as saying words like this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? It's completely a contradiction in terms. You see, Jesus didn't shy away from saying what most today are afraid of saying. He said that we need to live in such a way that others will see our good works and prove to be his disciples. John records this when Jesus said, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove through, the, through your life, through the bearing of much fruit, you prove to be His disciple. Paul himself said this in Ephesians 2.10, We're created for good works in Christ Jesus. If you think about it, in some ways, saving faith and works are like two sides of the same coin. Obviously, repentance and faith come first. But if you don't have genuine saving faith, you will not have the ability to bear fruit and so prove to be his disciples in a consistent way. Again, there can be no assurance of salvation if one's faith doesn't do the will of the Father and persist in that Godward life all the way to the end of their lives. It was Jesus' half-brother again, James, in James 2.14, again, who was an eyewitness and learned from his brother, his half-brother Jesus firsthand. He said things like this in 2.14, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? And the clear implied answer to James's question here is unequivocally, no. And then just two verses later in verse 17, he says, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Because genuine saving faith, genuine repentance is never alone. It's always accompanied with the change of direction from deeds of darkness to deeds of light. Always. And so James supports this in the next verse, in verse 18, and he says, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. And as you might assume, it's impossible to show someone your faith without works. 
It's impossible. You can say it all the day long, but it's impossible to show someone your faith without works. Thief on the cross. Got you there. Well, no, you see the thief on the cross gave the works of the fruit of his lips in affirming that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. The fruit off his lips. You say, but that was fruit off his lips. Well, you see, he was hanging on a cross and he didn't have a good opportunity to do much else but that. And so to make that a normative measure for how we can then measure everybody else who comes to faith in Jesus would probably not be the, me- the best measuring rod after all, right? But how many times have we heard about the thief on the cross as proof positive that you don't have to have a changed life at all to get into the kingdom of heaven? If I've heard it once, I've heard it twice. I didn't exaggerate that, right? Sometimes it once a hundred times. No. But that's, we, we're, so, we're so trained in this easy believism, gospel-saturated church culture that we live in that we're afraid to affirm that Jesus demands the transformation of life as evidence, as the test of genuine repentance because we are so afraid of adding works to the gospel. And Jesus wasn't worried about it in the least. He started right up, repent. That's what you do. You repent. You turn from your sins against God. You confess them and you freely receive the free forgiveness of sins that are in Christ Jesus. And as a result of genuine repentance, what does he do? He's faithful and righteous and he gives you the imputation of a new heart. And from that heart, there's new affections that abound. Affections you never had before. And freely from that new heart, you see truth and you freely from your new heart say, yes, I want Jesus, all of him. All of me for all of him. Lord, use my life how you can send it. Isaiah of old, here I am, Lord, send me. There's no other way around it. This is the gospel according to Jesus. Let me just say this in wrapping up for today. It can be hard oftentimes for us to discern these things like how much fruit is enough fruit? How much faithfulness to these inner attitudes and those solemnitudes? How much do we have to get into to say, well, this much was enough, but you, you slipped a little bit here. and then It's sometimes hard for us to discern these things, and that's why I'm not saying here today you need to be looking to your neighbor or your family. You need to be look, we just look at ourselves. It can be hard to discern sometimes. But let me assure you this, it won't be hard for Jesus. God who sees all things and knows all things. He knows. Doesn't he? He knows. He knows if you're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness above all things. He knows. Maybe hard for us to discern. He knows. It may be hard for us to discern if we're peacemakers. It's not, easy. It's not hard for Jesus to, to, dem- to know that truth. Or if we're merciful, blessed are the merciful, for they have been shown mercy. It's not, it's not hard for Jesus to know. Sometimes we make too much in, in, of these things and we try, to, we try to see 
how limiting we can make these things so as we can slip into the kingdom of heaven through that narrow gate because we desperately want to get there, but we always have this crutch, this fallback. Yeah, but you know, we're going to sin. Well, it's just the way it's going to be. We're going to sin. And we have this defeatist mentality that we're going to sin because that's just what we're going to do. We're just going to sin. So, you know, if I... You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He doesn't want you as a trophy of grace always going around saying, well, I'm just going to sin. You know I'm going to sin. We're all going to sin. Sin's just what we do. He wants you going around being a reflective and an aroma of grace that overflows from your life so that that can bleed out through your life into lives of those whom you come into contact with. Are you going to sin? Well, sure you are. But to make much of it, why? You've been redeemed from those things. You repented. You turned from that stuff. You've turned to a kingdom of light. Live that way. Live for the glory of God. Live for His purposes. All the days of your lives, because He knows. Well, we're going to stop here in this sermon. We're going to pick up right here next week, verse 22, and we're going to demonstrate some of the hard teachings of Jesus that affirm what we've been saying today very solidly. Read in advance. Come prepared. You need to let this truth sink in. There's not many willing to preach this. Hardly any church out there is going to preach this. And this isn't me patting myself on the back. All I'm doing is saying what Jesus said. That's it. All I'm doing is trying to faithfully say what Jesus said. Nothing more, nothing less. But I can assure you this, as a shepherd of a church, I'm going to be held accountable for the souls of people that are in this church. I will be. And if I don't faithfully herald the gospel to the people that show up in this church, I don't want any of you to hear what somebody next week is going to hear when they get to the end of that day when he says, I never knew you. I don't want anybody into the preaching the gospel that comes into Jinx Bible Church. I don't want that blood on my hands. And so I'm going to faithfully proclaim what Jesus proclaimed as loudly as I can from this pulpit, knowing that I've done all men to convince people everywhere to genuinely repent and follow hard after Jesus Christ. If you've never done that in your life, would today be the first day you would consider doing that? What would keep you back from doing that? What would hold you back from putting faith in Jesus Christ today? And then allowing His Holy Spirit to birth in you the beautiful attitudes that we see there in the Beatitudes, that will become descriptive of you in a progressive way throughout the course of your sojourning with King Jesus. And without that, you need to question your genuine salvation because you're not just coming for fire insurance. You're coming to have the man Christ Jesus in a relationship because you love Him from the heart. From the heart. Why? Because he gave you a new heart. He gave you a new heart to love him. That's why. Don't leave today without knowing certainly, Lord, is it me? That you're one of his. Let's pray.